0: Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly, my loyal and trusting co-host as always. We are talking today with Bert White, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at LPL Financial. We are uh, going to dig into some of his uh, outlooks for the markets and also going to learn all kinds of good secrets about LPL. Bert, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Man, I am uh, super excited to be here.
0: All right. Well, I think Bruce is going to kick it off with some of the
2: early grilling. <laughs> Great. <laughs> hey, Bert, how are you? Good, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's so great to talk to you. We haven't chatted in a while and we definitely haven't seen each other in a couple of years, probably.
1: I missed you. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I've, I've, I've missed you. And I got to tell you, the next time I say there, that Bert, you know, I, well, I know, I know, I know. But I'm one of the special people that, uh, that not only knows the real you, but loves the real you. And I, I can't wait to grab you, give you a big bear hug, buddy. <laughs>
2: We can do it uh, via Zoom, I guess, at some point. Amen. But Bert, like I said, thanks so much for taking some time to be here. You and I have known each other for, I don't know, 10 years or longer, I guess. You know, we've I've interviewed you many times. We've seen each other at conferences and the like. And you are really what what I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things, but your ebullience, your 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 passion with the financial advice business, it really comes across on the at the focus meetings and focus for those people who don't know is the annual big gathering of LPL advisors, and you all are doing that virtually this week. I think with an eye on returning next year in person in Denver, I believe. That's right. That's right. So, what was some of the what are I, I saw Dan Arnold's presentation yesterday. Rich Steinmeier, who's in charge of recruiting and business development, spoke, you spoke generally. Did you have a, you always have a great message for the advisors when you do these things in person. You bring in personal anecdotes and your family to this too. Was there anything in particular that you could share with us from the focus meeting that you're communicating to the advisors right now? And it doesn't have to be market related or firm related, just your kind of, your special outlook.
1: Yeah, well, well, Thanks, and, and indeed, we're so lucky and blessed to be able to get in front of our advisors during Focus this week. And you know, a couple of things that I I talked about today. You know, number one is that look, COVID gave us a gift. It gave the world a gift. Now, granted, don't don't get me wrong. It, COVID sucked. It still right. does. Right, right. But it gave the world a gift to be able to see a strip a stripped down world, a world that. You know, like we couldn't see a world without traffic jams or crowds. Like we just couldn't see that world, but we did with COVID. And here's what's interesting about it: if you look at the average city, the average city, sixty percent of its land is devoted to vehicles. Then just think about that for a second. Sixty percent of the land is devoted to vehicles, and we never noticed it, never thought of it. <laughs> and where we are you pulling that from,
2: Bert? Where are you pulling that number from? Well,
1: there's statistics that. There's studies out there that a wide range of studies have done. And I'll shoot that to you a little bit later as to okay, sure. some of the studies that have it. But but really, you know, most of it is parking lots. Parking lots, in fact, are the single most salient piece land-wise of cities, right? Not where we live, not where we cheer with our friends, not, not where we love, not where we gather, not where we celebrate, but where we park, you know? And so I think one of the, the things that I've been talking about here is how cities are now beginning to rethink how do they change their currency from cars to people? And business is doing the same thing. How does it change its currency? The currency is changing uh, in every business. And in our business, the financial services business, too much of the currency was around AUM. It was around trades. It was around transactions. It was around accounts. And no longer. It is around people. And, And that was a big story, is that people is the new currency. I'd say the second big story, and and, and it it relates to this, and that is that the world doesn't have a communication problem. It has a connection problem. And, you know, think about this. Calls are up 35%. We're on the phones 35% longer. We're 500% increase in video calls. Uh, We're texting more than ever. And yet two out of three Americans say they're lonelier than they've ever been three out of 10 Americans live alone. That's the highest on, you know, generationally. And so, you know, think smaller families, uh, you know, investors that have less grandkids to go visit and on and on. And and the other thing that I, I, I talked about was there's this really great book called A Great Good Place by Ray Oldenburg. And one of the things he talks about is the three places people have. Their first place is where they live. Their second place is where they work. And the third place, are these hangout spots, bars and gyms and, you know, parks and and arenas where you can go, no agenda, just to go hang out and connect. But think about what COVID did. Your first place and your second place became your same place because we, we worked where we lived. And then the third places were shut down. And so what happened was we began to realize that even though we're communicating more and more, And we're communicating more than we ever have. We're connecting less. And that was another part. So we talked about how do we end up making sure that we as a company make sure that people is the new currency, that we avoid the parking lots of our own business and make sure that we really drive that. And secondly, is how do we make sure that we are connecting in a way in the new modern world? And the last thing I just say on that is it's all about partnership, right? It's no longer about just being a client or being a consumer, uh, folks want to be a partner, right? Investors want to be a part of this investment experience and some of the things we're doing to drive that.
2: Well, I mean, it's. I think that's interesting. You all, LPL, even before the pandemic, well before the pandemic, was trying to shift more to, or not shift more to, but add to, I guess, its roster of kind of service services, right, That it, that create this kind of, Connection between the mothership and the advisor, and I think Dan Arnold was, has been very purposeful about that. You've been involved, kind of, on the technology and in the investment strategy side yep. of that. And you have nineteen thousand advisors with you with the closing of the Well Waddell and Reed acquisition, which was about eight hundred people. I guess you know nineteen thousand advisors. How can you be lonely, Or, You know, if you're <laughs> if you're LPL. I remember you when you had 8,000 advisors, for crying out loud. You know, it's a huge firm, right? I mean, this is just, the growth has been unreal. More than a trillion in assets and a lot of, that's just not the market too, right? So just speak to that, I guess. Yeah, so I think what's
1: exciting about that, Bruce, is that, you know, the the way, I think the way we look at it, the, the exciting part of our growth is how the number of households we serve is moving higher. What's exciting about our growth is how, you know, the individual advisors, each 19,000 of them that is in every corner of the United States, what they're doing is they're seeing their individual businesses grow. And again, that's redirecting the way we look at things, right? If we look at the world of how many assets we have or how many advisors are at LPL or how many trades have we done this month, I think we're losing the picture of the new currency. And it is about how many families do we serve? You know, how many folks retired this month? How many people are, you know, getting that, uh, that distribution to be able to go on that vacation that they've been waiting to do for 18 months? Like, those are the metrics that matter these days. And what I can tell you is those metrics are higher than we've ever seen them. And that is because we are, you know, we're serving more and helping more clients than ever before. And I think that is when you begin to rechange, rewire metrics that you even look at. You begin to serve differently, you begin to develop differently, and you begin to connect differently and, and and that's really the rewiring that I think the entire industry needs to do, but i'll tell you we've done it here at LPl people's a new currency and while it's great to have nineteen thousand advisors it's great to serve a bunch of clients, but it's more about each individual practice, helping them be able to get their own perfect practice to be able to deliver and serve every small facet and haven and Town and community in America, and be able to drive that—that's super exciting.
2: I appreciate all that, but I guess we ran a story yesterday about an advisor out of Texas named who was affiliated with uh, LPL Eileen Cure, and she she was reported on TikTok that she had made some statements that seemed to be discriminating uh, against a. Uh, african-americans and, and being employed at her her firm can you comment on that at all or how does i mean and it seems and, and lpl last night said we're not we're cutting her we're not doing business with her anymore is that something you can speak to or address in in you know specifically or in the broader context of what the firm is trying to do i guess
1: yeah i, I think the, the what i would just say bruce is you, you know that you know, look, we feel very lucky to be affiliated with so many amazing advisors, and we, we, all of us, you know, hold ourselves to have, you know, high levels of integrity and conduct, and to be able to uh, serve clients in a in a really special way, but one that is personalized. You know, and and those situations when they occur, they they work themselves out, and that did. And but the reality is, what we 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 feel fortunate, and we have a community of very caring, loving advisors that care about their clients immensely. And the most important thing is that we continue to foster that and we continue to attract that. Because when you do that, at the end of the day, you end up to have uh, more and more that want to be a part of that type of community.
2: Right, right. I appreciate the response. Jeff, you wanted to ask Bert a couple of questions too.
0: Yeah, Bert, how are you doing? Thank you very much for for being here with us. And uh, Thanks for that insight on Eileen Cure and that whole situation there. But uh, you're a chief investment officer, so I got to imagine that you spend a lot of your day kind of looking at charts and graphs and, you know, analyzing data. And I got a question for you. I'm I'm working on a cover story right now about alternative investments. And I've been doing this for a a while here in Investment News, and I have never (laughs) been in a situation where I've seen this many people telling me, the 60-40 model is not going to help you right now. You've got to diversify beyond that or tweak the heck out of it. What are, what are your thoughts on that really open-ended question?
1: Yeah. You, you know, well, so, God, I hate to agree with that because if I, if, you know, that's one of the first <laughs> rules of investing is uh, right, right. beware the crowded extremes, right? And so when everyone starts jumping off the bridge, for the love of God, run the other way. But, but I think, you know, here's how I would answer it maybe a little differently. You know, I'm I'm not a big believer at all in setting portfolios geared around 60, 40, 70, 30, 25, 25, 50 or anything else. The reality is, I think the industry has made a huge mistake in trying to invest around asset classes, because then it leaves you with these discussions. How much fixed income should I have? How much equity should I have? How much international should I have? I think we need to stop building portfolios around asset classes and start building portfolios around outcomes. I know that I got to build a portfolio around the outcome of, of income. I got to build a portfolio around an, an outcome of growth, about inflation protection, and on and on. So when people ask me about the 60-40 portfolio, and that 40 meaning you know, mostly fixed income, what I say is, Don't think about fixed income that way. What you want to do is to think about how much income do you need or how much protection do you need? What Mm -hmm. we know is that fixed income isn't providing you any income. So if you're looking for income, don't go fixed income, right? Go someplace else. Go to REITs, go to dividend producing stocks, whatever the case may be. Find that part of your outcome someplace else. And, and, And what about protection? Well, we know that bonds actually are providing quite a bit of protection. Quite well. Just if you look at the last uh, little bit of time going back here, you know, 20, 30 years, going all the way back to the 20s, December of 2000, you know, whenever the market is down more than 3%, by and large, guess what happens? Funds are up. And so the reality of, of this is that they're doing their job as an anchor to windward. So that part is certainly an aspect of portfolios that make a ton of sense. This is where alternatives come into play. So if you're looking for income or, or diversification, or if you're looking for uh, whatever the case may be, this is where alternatives can play that role to be able to help. And obviously, with rates likely moving higher, um, you're going to end up being able to put that part of fixed income under pressure. That pressure of uh, delivering, you know, more consistent positive returns the majority of the time, and then you know, likely a 10-20 year period that we're going to see rising rates. We are going to see a secular rise in rates. We will see that. And when that happens, it's going to put a lot of pressure on bonds. So Long answer to say the sixty forty is dead, but I think every other number portfolio you put in there is dead too. Stop thinking about building models around asset classes. Start thinking about building models around outcomes.
0: Well, yeah, and I no offense, Bert, but I blame people like you for for those sixty forties that were what? Like,
1: <laughs> what? What now? What in the world? It's huh? all Bert's is- fault. I you're, just refuted this, and you're not yeah. blaming well, me that said, you're blaming I the said, chef? Like, come on, man.
0: I said people like you, people that have the words chief investment and officer in their title.
1: Yeah, but, um, I, you, know, you know you know, what's really interesting, and this is where I'm going to blame you, all right? Let's just get into a blame game here, all right? <laughs> all you right. know what's really interesting? When you, you, you when you started off, you said, hey, Bert, you know, it's great to talk to you. You've probably look at a lot of charts. And you know what's interesting is, this is where I think chief investment officers get this wrong. Research people get this wrong. You know, investing isn't about charts. Investing isn't about digging into, you know, statement of cash flows all the time. It is some. And we need to have a part of our team. Investing is about helping, you know, folks achieve their life dreams. That's what chief investment officers should be focused on, my opinion. and should be focused on things about how investments and investing impact people's lives. And, And this is one of the, this is my passion. My passion is not diving through statement of cash flows or free cash flow analysis. That's not my passion. My passion is how you think about building uh, amazing uh, plans to be able to manifest itself into uh, helping people achieve their goals. And, and, I, and I just think that, that it's interesting. You know, we get caught into all this math and 60-40 and all this other stuff. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think it has really been a disservice. We have taught people the S&P 500, and all they care about is beating it or not beating it. And it is a disservice. How investors actually look at the true magic of compounding and patience and outcomes and all the other things that come with a great plan, and I just think that that as an industry, I think we can do better. And I'll tell you, I want to be a part of that new world of thinking about investing in a different way.
0: Well, Bert, Bruce and I have have often made little jokes about all the chief titles out there in uh, <laughs> in the world of corporate American. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna send a a little memo to one of your bosses to have your title changed to chief achieving life dreams officer. I think that's a, that's a golden title right there. <laughs> I that's love
1: that. that. That's the, that's the best idea I've, I've heard all day.
2: It, it, it's that's solid. All it right. Really now, first, anything else? Yeah. Just one more question Bert, before we, before we go before we say we go, goodbye on the call with Dan Arnold yesterday, you all mentioned some new service or something for the advisors to aggregate account households, I believe. Yes. You seemed really everybody seemed kind of jazzed about that. LPL has been known I think we can honestly say for taking longer than than it it had hoped for to introduce some of its technology. What what are you got what were you guys referring to there and how is that going to help financial advisors at the firm?
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I, I saw that. I saw that little dig in there into the question, Bruce. Don't think I didn't hear that. One. So, uh, <laughs> it's not uh, nothing
2: we, that not anything we've written in the past. <laughs> but, so.
1: No, yeah, listen, I you know, I, I think it gets back to people, people and families are the new currency, like I talked about. And, and I think that one of the things that we're really focusing on is how we enable advisors to not only view their clients more and more as families, Pull all the way through to how they open accounts that way, how they serve them that way, how they build them that way, how we supervise them that way, how they trade that way. But then also how we begin to look at advisors differently. I mean, let's face it, you know, it, it you know, the world thinks of the, a lot of the, the financial services world thinks of this industry as an accumulation of advisors. That's what you talked about. You had 19,000 advisors. Well, guess what? A bunch of those advisors come together in really great practices You know, they work with their assistants and they have a a group of advisors that work together. And the reality is, how do we think about that? Them being able to household each other into that perfect practice and being able to support that perfect practice in a way that begins to uh, showcase the fact that, you know, they are actually a firm, uh, an organization that serves their community, not individual advisors themselves. And I think when we think about this ability of householding, we think of it. Thematically across the full board of us serving. But what is the new advisors. thing? Just
2: to wrap it up, or what is the new thing that the LPL is introducing or rolling out here?
1: Well, it's a concept, but also it's the ability to for advisors to be able to manage their clients and the families that they that they have, both billing that way, and then increasingly, uh, what's coming soon is super, uh, supervision um, and uh, and trading and others, and be able to just drive that, and then also be able to showcase it as it relates to digital properties and the ability to communicate. them. Right.
2: Okay. That sounds pretty
1: cool. It's very cool.
2: Bert, we just want to thank you for your time. And I know you got a really super busy week here with Focus and, and all the travel that you're doing, but we, we really appreciate it.
1: Hey, really miss you guys. And thank you for having me on and look forward to spending some time in person with you guys very soon.
2: Thanks again.
0: Okay, folks. Now we're back with Zach Teuch, founder of Values Added Financial. This is part of our our ongoing series on niche advisors, looking at advisory firms and advisors that focus on a specific segment of the market. A lot of the the big thinkers, like Michael Kitsis, they believe and you know niche practices are the way to go. Being a generalist, kind of, uh, even though it seems like you catch everyone. You might not catch everyone you like, or that works for you, or works for your practice, and might not fit into your strengths. But Zach has found a niche that he likes, working with progressives. Which uh, him and I had a long conversation about this a couple of weeks ago. I wrote a story about it; very interesting. The word socialism came up a few times, but Zach, as he will explain, that's a that's kind of a underneath the umbrella term of progressives. I. To me, the initial part of the story that was so fascinating to me, and and Zach and I actually met on Twitter, but uh, the initial interesting part was that Zach said that there are a lot of people like him who can't find financial advisors who don't look like or act like Mitt Romney, which uh, I thought was a great line. So Zach, uh, (laughs) welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks again for our conversation last week, Jeff. And it's great to meet you, Bruce. I'm just really happy to be here with you.
2: Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Yep.
0: So tell us tell us, give us a little bit of the background on the on the niche. Describe it to us. Because you're you're obviously if you've got a niche, you're selective, right? And you're you're narrowly focused. And I know that The non mitt
2: Romney niche. Yeah.
0: You uh, you you <laughs> you are you are
3: you, you don't hide your focus, right? That's exactly right. And as we're fond of saying, values added financial helps progressives build financial lives they can feel good about. And that's what we do. We work mostly, but not exclusively, with progressives. Our clients tend to have values that are very important to them. They tend to be concerned about thinking through their purpose and thinking about their financial concerns in the context of the kind of impact that they want to have in the world. And we don't keep stats on politics or anything like that, but overwhelmingly, they're left leaning. And very often, they have concerns about climate change, they have concerns about racism and sexism and other kinds of oppression that we have in society, and they want advisors who understand and share those values and concerns.
0: Okay. Okay. Talk to us about the, the way that you promote this niche. I mean, you're you're attracting people that are very much like-minded, right, with you.
3: That's right. I think that I sometimes joke that there are many more socialists who need a financial advisor than there are socialist financial advisors. <laughs> uh, you know.
0: I, that does not seem like a stretch to me.
2: But uh, yeah,
0: you know, I feel like we've got Henny
2: Youngman here, Jeff, or something. Yeah. You've know, you got a lot of lines. Uh, Mr. Toich, here. You know, you ever you ever do the stand-up financial advisor route too, or or what?
3: You know, I've always tried to stay in my lane, but I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> okay. If somebody is a sort of tax-averse person who has a more sort of right-leaning instinct, they're very often and and can have a very easy time finding an advisor whose values are similar to theirs. That that when I was talking to Jeff, I mentioned, you know, if you think a lot like Mitt Romney, you'll have no problem finding a financial advisor who shares your values because I think on average financial advisors tend to be sort of tax averse and somewhat more libertarian perhaps. And I've talked to a lot of people who say, "Gosh, I am very skeptical of Wall Street." and i really want an advisor who i feel like understands me and understands my values so let me give you an example of a kind of client that that we work with some of our clients uh, are from wealthy families maybe their parent or grandparent created quite a bit of wealth maybe starting a business or something like that and their grandparent's financial advisor is of a more sort of traditional country club variety and in fact, we had one client just like this come to us and say, I asked the family financial advisor what we should do about the racial wealth gap. And I had read that it is growing to a really terrible amount and it was already very high. And I felt very concerned about it. And I asked them, what should I do with my investments based on that concern? And the advisor really had no idea what I was talking about and clearly had never thought about it before. And that made that person profoundly uncomfortable, and so they wanted to find an advisor who really could have a meaningful conversation about that with them. And they found their way to us, and it was a great fit because we had actually more sophisticated investment in tax planning skills than, than their former advisor had had. But the big thing was we really got them, and we understood their concerns, and we understand, understood that for them, there was a conflict between feeling good about making strong returns in a smart, tax efficient way, but also feeling that there were some problems with that system and they felt complexity and they felt uh, difficulty about doing well in it. And it, it isn't just so clear as it is for some people. And so we work with a lot of clients like that.
0: Yeah, they're, they're, I write a lot about the niche advisor practices and there are. it seems like everyone has a different kind of challenge. Because you might be trying to weed out people who wouldn't be good for your focus and you want to keep your focus narrow or there's marketing challenges or whatever. But with yours, I found it most fascinating that, and you've said it yourself a couple of times, you, you got, you have people who are, who are distrustful of Wall Street or, or as I think you said one time, anti capitalism, but they're going to somebody like you to help them, let's face it, amass some kind of money and get, you know, a little bit wealthier. And, and tax management is part of that. I, I'm wondering how you, how you kind of rectify those things.
3: So Jeff, I think you put your finger on something which is a really rich and fascinating part of the work we do, which is people come to us and they want their money to grow. And most of them don't want to pay any more taxes than they're obligated to pay we don't have any clients who would like to pay less taxes than they're obligated to pay, but it's a complicated thing. We really want to sit with the, sit with the challenge there and help people understand what their goal is. It happens to us all the time that clients come to us and say, we want to keep enough money so that we'll be comfortable now and in the future. And we want to give the rest away. And that's true whether they've inherited money or we've got many clients who have built successful companies, mostly in tech and that kind of thing. Like we've got a lot of fairly wealthy clients and they have this question. And on the face of it, it seems like a pretty simple question. How much money do I need now and in the future? But it turns out it's not simple at all. What we do is we try to really understand our client's purpose. What role do they want money to play in their life? How do they want their life to work? And only then can we figure out the right investment and tax strategies and how it fits into a comprehensive view.
0: It it, it is interesting that you said that you don't have any clients who want to pay less taxes than they're obligated to pay. You must have the most philanthropic, wonderful people as clients that they ever made in the world. I think everybody wants to pay less taxes, don't they? Or no? Maybe not.
3: You know, I guess it depends on what I mean, I think that uh, plenty of clients would be happy if the government was able to provide all the services that it needed at at no cost to taxpayers. Like, you know, if we were uh, in Norway or something and had a lot of fossil fuel wealth. But what I mean, the clients that we have, for the most part, say we need roads, we need libraries, we need schools, we need people to make sure that when there's a fire the fire department comes and puts it out you know our clients don't want to go back to the 19th century when you had to pay your own fire department and there were competing fire departments that sabotaged each other you know they generally believe in this idea that taxes are the price you pay for living in a civilized world and they actually for the most part want government to succeed and they want government to make their lives better not Universally but you know I'd say that's the vast majority of our clients feel that way and they don't like for the most part our clients don't like to do things that feel like exploiting loopholes so some of our work is helping them understand what are conventional tax strategies and which aren't for instance when you present a backdoor Roth IRA strategy on the face of it somebody could feel that that's exploiting a loophole but to us, You know, more recently, it's been an intended strategy that's well founded and well understood. And in fact, there's nothing. Perhaps it started out as a loophole, but it's long since ceased to be one. And that helps our clients to know what's what's in a what's in a gray area and what's a solidly comfortable, typical, conventional approach. Well, it's Um, not an
2: offshore tax shelter, right, that you're recommending.
3: Yeah, our, our that, has are to dubious, that
2: has a history and can and has a history of, you know, some sometimes being used properly and sometimes being used improperly, you know,
3: exactly. Our, you know, none of our clients want to want to do anything improper with their taxes, which is
0: great. Hey, uh, Zach, can you tell us what I think is interesting? Your Your background. I mean, you didn't come straight out of college to become a financial planner. And what also was interesting is that a lot of the the niche advisor profiles that I write, they're advisors that started as generalists and kind of found their niche. But you you had your niche right from the get go, right?
3: Jeff, thanks so much for asking about that. So I studied economic sociology and organizational behaviors in undergrad. And I'm so thankful to the fellow students and teachers. I, I learned a lot. And I've always been interested in questions of investments and finance and economics and who do the systems benefit and who do they leave behind and what does that mean? So when I left, well, actually, I should say I almost took a job working in the Bear Stearns Collateralized Debt Obligations Unit in 2005, which, as you might recall, (laughs) is the unit that collapsed the economy.
2: Yikes, that's red hot man.
3: um, (laughs) Thankfully, I decided that what they were doing wasn't anything I was really passionate about. And I couldn't quite see how that was going to make the world better. So instead, I chose to work at the Service Employees International Union, which is a big union with roughly 2 million members. And I worked in the group there that considered pension funds and investment which mattered a lot because our members were in pension funds worth about one and a half trillion dollars. So I got to write and think about how hedge funds were charging them inappropriate fees relative to the benefits they were offering. And I got to work on a variety of policy issues, both about investments and about investment policy. And it it was really interesting. We got to do a lot of good over there in the capital stewardship program. Shortly after a couple of years of my working there, this wonderful guy, Rich Ferlato, at a different big union, me. started a program. He got grant money from the FINRA Investor Education Foundation to start the first national financial skills education programs for union members. And he hired me to build the program. And it was extremely interesting. We tried to figure out what everyday members of the union, some of them were blue-collar like sanitation workers, some of them were professionals like assistant district attorneys or engineers, it was a really wide variety of people We were trying to figure out what skills would be helpful to them. how could we teach them financial skills? how could we teach them about investment in ways that would help complement their pensions and social security and how could we do it in a way that was that didn't sound like the social security privatizers did? And that was a fascinating challenge we reached hundreds of thousands of union members through that program and the successor investor education program at the AFL-CIO. So I did that for quite a while. And then the CFPB was getting started, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I joined the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And that was a really incredible experience too. In, In the time that I was there, the CFPB returned about $15 billion to consumers from various lending and quasi lending institutions that had inappropriately charged or taken interest from consumers. It was it was really special. And then the administration's changed and there was a big change in our capacity to do good, and I'd always loved financial coaching which I had done for a long time, but for years my coaching clients it was clear that they would have loved more support and implementation, they would have loved tax planning advice. They would have loved having specific ticker symbols to use instead of broad, general information. And they so they wanted more support, deeper support and support on a wider variety of areas. But for very good reasons, when I was at the CFPB, I wasn't allowed to set up an RIA. So when I left the CFPB, I was able to set up an RIA and I was able to offer deeper and broader services. Uh, and it turns out it was a really special niche. And my background is very appealing to certain kinds of people, people who really care about evidence based interventions, people who care about having somebody who has an empowerment oriented educational background. And it doesn't necessarily appeal to some other people, you know, who maybe are skeptical of the CFPB or of the role that unions play. So I worked with the kinds of people who tended to value the experiences and skills. knowledge i brought to bear on the situation and i think that's sort of a trend in niches that if you've chosen a good niche it's one where you're able to bring a lot of the eclectic and valuable things about your background to people who will find them interesting instead of concerning and people who will find value in your experiences
2: right on bruce Just a couple of points, Zach, just to back up on your Bear Stearns experience. I mean, are you walking on water over there or something? Because, I mean, your former compatriots at Bear Stearns, while they were trading in 2005, 2006, those guys, I know, those guys were making millions of dollars in bonuses annually. And you walked away from all that. I mean, what was that like?
3: That, it's a great question. I mean, I wasn't going to make millions of dollars. If they offered me millions of dollars when I was 22, it would have been much harder to say no.
2: But the bonus money was real, though, Zach.
3: No, the bonus money was real. People made a lot of money. Right. And ultimately, they did an enormous amount of harm. Because yes. I think a lot of those people were more concerned about their bonuses than the quality of the markets and the quality of the products. And a lot of pension funds bought those products. Yes, they them- did.
2: Yes, they did. Mm-
3: millions of dollars in bonuses and it meant that it all of a sudden became very hard to pay somebody who'd been a 30-year teacher their monthly payment you know so i i feel great enmity for the behavior that those people did and they were willing to become rich offering very little of value but hindsight's 2020 we didn't i didn't know that in 2005 i had just i was 22 years old i had just finished as an undergraduate so i don't want to suggest that i myself knew about the housing bubble and but i did know that there was something that was off there the people i talked to did not have a sense that what they were doing was important and they didn't have a principled view about the impact they were having it really felt a little bit more like they were very good at a game and they were playing a game Huh. That certainly appeals too. I mean, I really like winning <laughs> at, at games as much as the next person, but that itself isn't sustaining. That's not. I up Robin
2: out. Hood uh, this week, right? <laughs> right. I mean, no, but you lived through a fascinating time at a fascinating place, man. I, I, I just can't imagine what what that was like. And there was so much money to be made in the creation of these derivative type products linked to commercial real estate and and and, and the like. And they were being bought. They were being sold to pension funds all over the world, right?
3: No, that's absolutely right. So I'm really glad that instead of, instead of taking the job I was offered at Bear Stearns, I instead took a job at the Service Employees International Union. And that was that made a big difference in my life. I was once, many years ago, traveling in the South on a program called Operation Understanding, which promoted coexistence between African-American and Jewish people. I, myself, am Jewish. And I passed a church once that had in front of it on the sign a phrase that said, "There's always cheese in mouse traps." <laughs> and to this day, I'm not entirely sure what it meant, but it clearly made a big impression. And what I think it means uh... is that if there were no cheese in the mouse trap, the mouse would never go in in the first place. And I came to regard a progressive's place on Wall Street as cheese in the mouse trap. I could have perhaps. Gone in there and learned a lot of useful finance skills, and then brought them to bear for the broader good. But I think there's was a greater chance that I would have come to their view than they would have come to mine. And the people who bait mousetraps know that there's a much greater chance that the that the trap will snap than that you that the then you'll get the cheese. And I'm really glad that I didn't try to eat out of that mousetrap.
2: Fascinating. Thank you.
3: Yeah. Zach, I just have a couple quick things for
0: you and then we're going to let you go. But the first one is when you worked at the Service Employees International Union,
3: is that a unionized workforce? Yes, that I was a member of the Office and Professional Employees International Union, Local 2. Okay, that makes
0: perfect sense. And I would be frustrated if it didn't. The other thing I want to ask you is And I know you kind of touched on this a little bit, but for other advisors who are listening to this and and thinking about setting up their own niche, what are some of the tips you can give for for kind of finding your niche and
3: and making it work for you? Oh, great question. Thanks for asking that, Jeff. So a few thoughts. One is, I think it's critical to choose a niche which is authentic to the advisor. If I I try to do a niche serving conservatives... I would really struggle. They wouldn't trust me. I would find it unpleasant. I think a big, so maybe I, I hope you don't mind me saying
2: that I would pay good money to see you do that. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm a little I, bit, I'm a political politics junkie. So I would just love to see that. that be a mean, reality that, show. Oh, that would be fantastic.
3: You know, I would be happy to work on <laughs> it. It would be really fun. Cause here's the thing, the, the people whose firms are most like our firm, are not other lefties for the most part. They're Christian conservatives who care about biblical finance and have clients who are not trying to drive the fastest car, but are trying to figure out how to live their life in a scriptural way. And that's sort of interesting. There's this weird thing where the left and the right are sometimes more similar to each other than either is to the middle because they're values driven and we're values driven. They're just somewhat different sources and values. But anyway, that's another talk for another day. But to answer your question, I think you have to choose something that's really authentic for a couple of reasons. One, you're much more likely to get into your flow state. It's just much easier to do well when you're being yourself and you don't have to you know, worry about it and you can show up at work and be your whole self because I think that opens up the opportunity to just do better. And it also means that your clients can trust you more. There's a certain kind of trust that comes from being open and having deeply held shared values and principles. You know, there's only so much somebody's ever going to trust an advisor who doesn't talk about religion and doesn't talk about politics and just shows you cute pictures of their kid. Like they'll like that person, but I'm not sure they're going to really feel that they get that person and that person gets them in a deep way. So I think you want to choose something that's authentic to yourself. The other thing is there's a whole bunch of different kinds of niches. You know, ours is a values-based niche. Now, it leads to certain financial planning skills that are important. You know, we know a lot more about how the 30% AGI limitation on appreciated securities works. We know a lot more about how to deconcentrate a position with a charitable remainder trust because our clients tend to be charitable. So we we do have some financial planning expertise, which is related, but a lot of our expertise is cultural. It's knowing about some of the sensitivities and concerns about serving a trans client and how to be careful about pronouns or how to make sure that their dead name, you know, the name that they use in advance of a transition doesn't appear on documents and that that might be a point of great pain. You know, So there's some cultural things that we learn which are critical to our niche but there's other kinds of niches too i mean some people only work with dentists who are considering selling their practices and they have a really a planning oriented expertise more than a cultural fluency and values expertise so you know there's different kinds of niches that work for different kinds of people but i think regardless of the niche most people are terrified of being specific and saying this is who we serve yeah and i even i even find that feeling in myself i always We do a lot of our best work with clients who are asking some of the questions we have the greatest expertise in. But I myself am even nervous and always want to say, oh, no, we don't only serve progressives, including socialists and people who are more Warrenites and that kind of thing. I always feel the need to say, oh, and we also serve clients really well who just like us for our emotionally sensitive, evidence based Fundamental advice. And we do have clients like that, and we get along with them really well, and we care about them, and they care about us. And I always feel the need to talk about it. I have this poll too, but I think ultimately firms tend to be the most successful when they get the best at whatever they're the best at, and that's what they focus on, and that's what they talk about. And I think the question that I would encourage all advisors who are listening to think about is what's the problem you're best at solving? And if you think about it in those terms, your niche is just what problem are you an expert at? Yeah. And we have a few expertises. And I should also say, more broadly, our niche is extremely underserved. There are so many progressives who feel like taxes are good for the world and still want tax management and want somebody who can sit with them in the complication of having those two views and people who want to really do well and give a bunch of money charitably, but also want their family to be comfortable and want to help them think through what the balance is. That's a very big market. People who want to save for retirement and want to invest, but also are concerned about the ethics of investment. You know, There are a ton of people like that, more than values added, could ever serve tens of thousands of times as many as we could ever serve. So I would encourage people who you know, who really are more of the progressive type to feel like they can come out and they can be upfront about that. And a lot of people are scared. But I think my experience has been the more upfront I've been about who I am, the more energy I've had, the better the business is done. And I would just say everybody should stop being shy. (laughs) Okay you know, be yourself. It'll be better for you. It'll be better for your clients. It'll help your clients find the right advisors. If everybody is themselves in an unapologetic way, it's going to help all the right clients pair up with the right advisors and it'll be better for everybody. All right. Good stuff, Bruce. Thank you so much, Zach. Hey, can I say one other thing? Sure. I really think uh, I want to especially say that there's tremendous demand among progressives for more advisors who are women and more advisors of color and more LGBTQ advisors. So if people are listening and they're trying to think about how to get in. If those are, I would especially be happy to talk to people and help them figure it out if if that's where they're coming from.
2: That's great. That's a great pitch.
3: All right. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you having me. Wonderful to talk to you, Bruce. Wonderful to talk to you, Jeff.
2: Well, there you have it, Jeff. That's another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guests, Burt White from LPL and Zach Teuch from Values Added Financial. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very own producer. Find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Reach out to Jeff. On Twitter, he is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week.